You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. Lalo Fiorelli has been a fighter pilot and an airline captain. His first book was Wild Splendors of California. His newest book is Secret Splendors of the Desert, Anza Borrego Desert State Park. Thank you for joining me, Lalo. Thank you for having me. Now, I, one thing that, that I can see why you had to go back over many years is that um, a lot of the stuff only shows up in a, in a wet winter. So tell us a little bit about uh, the weather, how much the weather matters there. Oh, big time. The cactus, I'm going to go backwards, bloom later than the annuals. The cactus will probably bloom in a fairly dry winter season. The annuals, however, decidedly need the late fall and winter rains. There have been three times in the course of this work, and actually I just had uh, in the four days we spent with the non-agenda uh, experience out there uh, had had rain and rainbows on my birthday in a desert and of course it kicks off in my head the old uh, song by the group of America horse with no name and mm-hmm. can't stop that refrain of that song going through your mind well it's true I think whoever wrote those lyrics knew the desert you know went to a desert on a horse with no name feels good to be out in the rain oh okay in the desert, you can remember your name for there, how's it go, ain't no one for to give you no pain. Mm-hmm. And I get that. So I feel that whoever wrote the lyric has to have some empathy and feeling for the desert environment. So the year, the best year that we had, we were there in January. And in January, there were already carpets of flowers over vast, strange areas, uh, running water in the washes. The most notable area of this was a long 15, 16-mile wash called Fish Creek Wash. And we have pictures in the book where you go from a sloping downhill field of mixed flowers to seeing the water running in the wash to seeing the striated rock that is the wall on the far side of the rock. And while they don't represent necessarily the most creative work I've done, I feel that that's my favorite, personal favorite image in the book because it tells the whole story in one, one image. You have the flowers, you have actual above ground water flowing in the wash. There's places along the course of the wash where there are flowers growing out of the the pebbles and sand right in the middle of the wash, okay, where it just wows you to no end. You can't get over the fact that this is happening. And we were so blown away. That was in a January. don't know the year, four or five years ago, something in that. But anyway, that we went back six weeks later for when it was going to be even better, and lo and behold, it was. Some areas that had been full flower carpets when we were there in January, six weeks later, were still full flower carpets, but what you saw before you was different than what you saw six weeks ago. Not less and not necessarily more, but 
the colors uh, had intensified so that things like desert sunflowers that were uh, more colored like winter light, actually, you know, a little weaker, more yellow by six weeks later were uh, becoming uh, vivid, bright orange, stuff like that. So it, it's mind-boggling. And then we have how does it end? What makes the flowers go away? And the folks at the park level who love the people to come and love the fact that they want to see the flowers, uh, there are, now I gave a sidestep, I'm putting the disclaimer in first, there is a bunch of caterpillars, and when I mean a bunch, I mean bazillions, and don't ask, they morph into uh, some form of moth. When they're done eating, oh, what do they eat? They eat the flowers. Oh, really? They can clean out the flowers in a day or two. You can see vast pieces of ground that were fully carpeted with flowers become uh, basically denuded. So now to get back to why do the park folks like the, the little caterpillars so much, uh, they call them their little heroes because when the caterpillars eat the flowers, then the tourists go home. <laughs> um, you, you also uh, in, have some uh, photos from Plum Canyon, and that's a different terrain. It's a little more, you have a choya and, and uh, uh, I'm going to try to say this, Chupa... Chuparosa. Chuparosa. Tell us about uh, Plum Canyon. Had, again, is this something, place that you, that's easy to get to? I mean, how far is that from the road? Uh, Plum Canyon is one that's rather close to the road, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, the whole thing, I don't think, is two miles in length. Mm. Uh, not really much different. It's just more narrow. Mm -hmm. So that the, uh, like the place that you're speaking of where the Choa was, uh, that backlit Choa business was done, mm -hmm. that's all in a typical area of what I would call normal terrain for there. Pardon me, just that the narrowness of the canyon, or as it goes up slope, it narrows itself increasingly and becomes not more rocky on the floor, but more rocky on the verges, mm -hmm. you know, as you start to have the slope from the, uh, from the rock formations themselves. And there are some incredible pictures of rock formations. And, and you talk yes. about the pressures that must have been made yes. to create some of these. Tell us a little bit about the geology of the place, which is responsible for it being there and of interest to us in the first place. Hmm. Again, this is uh, not a field that I have expertise in. Um, it's more a question of uh, my observing what is there mm -hmm. and finding places and ways to photograph them that give a creative view of them. There's some really good, I love the Borrego Badlands. Yes. I mean, they're really barren, aren't too. they? Yes and no. Are they barren on the ground? Because you're, from, from our perspective, the, the upper perspective, they look incredibly forbidding. Right. The, uh, the place that most of the Borrego Badland pictures were shot from is known as the Ocotillo Rim. And so with the exception of moving laterally along the Ocotillo Rim uh, being um, lower in elevation or higher in elevation when 
they were photographed, uh, and again, photographing them at or near a sunrise to produce the shadow detail and the erosion that um, gives them their interesting characteristics. So what I attempt to do is provide views of the things that I photograph that the average person looking at them doesn't see so that it becomes different, unusual, creative, um, approaching in concept, um, fine art, even though it's done uh, in the field like that. Now, um, <clears throat> you do have some, uh, uh, the pumpkin patch rocks. Yeah, isn't that cool? That's really cool. Where Now, where is that? It's off the grid. Uh, it is, matter of fact, it's no longer on the park park maps, and I am told, I haven't been there in quite a few years, that it now has some kind of protection around it. It is actually outside by some small amount, the actual state park area. Mm -hmm. And nobody knows a theory put forth as whatever the concretions are that form those masses, then had uh, weather, wind, and water erode what was covering them up. And by the time they were uncovered, the, uh, don't know any other way to put this, let's say the adhesive that's making them hold together uh, stayed that way because they are bizarre. They're, it's very, it really does look like a pumpkin patch oh, yeah, carved out of stone. Yes, and, and they're probably a couple of acres Wow, that's big. And that's the only place they are. That's very, very interesting. Um, you also uh, found some, some petroglyphs. Yes. Um, they don't look like they'd be very easy to find at all. How did you find them? Is this something that's known or that you stumbled across? No, they're, they're known. Um, they're not. The funny thing about it is they are in no way protected. Okay? Really? There is... Nothing that stops you from walking up on them and taking a magic marker and defacing them. Uh, they've never been defaced. When with my editor we had the discussion about identifying where they were, we chose to not place identify them, um, mainly to keep them from having too high an eye and I'll be the first one to tell you that uh, that point of view is slightly elitist, okay? Because really all these things that exist, if we keep the human being from going out and experiencing them, why do we have them anyway? But it just seemed like a right thing to do. And that group of petroglyphs, as they tell me, are unknown. They don't know who made them, when they were made, why they were made, or what they mean. Now, uh, that brings us a bit to the, the history of the place, which is, which is pretty interesting. You, you, you say we've got found fossils uh, six million years old? Yeah. And the earliest humans that were, lived there are 21,500 years from the carbon dating. Yes. Um, that carbon dating wasn't from a sample that was directly in the park, though. That's still an ongoing thing that they're working on. Um, it takes its name from Juan Batista Dienza. Yes. He led 
two expeditions through there, and he was guided after a while by Sebastian Tarabal. Tell, yes. tell us a little bit about their history. That's, it's an interesting history. So uh, Sebastian Tarabal was uh, an Indian, and he had made his way along in his life from northern Baja to um, he was married and living at uh, Mission San Gabriel in, I guess that's San Fernando Valley uh, mm -hmm. near, near Los Angeles. And he got a hair to go home. And so three people, he and his wife and one other person, set out from uh, California, or I should say from the San Gabriel area, going back to Anza. And he was the one who actually found that route through, uh, through actually through Coyote Canyon and, and then up through it. So he ran, uh, De Anza ran into Tarabell someplace along the way. Oh, Tarabell's return from the, uh, from the coastal California area, he, both his wife and the other person that was with him uh, died through uh, circumstances of weather and whatnot. So now De Anza was the blessed, uh, governmentally approved person to do this work. And it turns out that uh, Tara Bell guided him, and that worked, and Danza got the credit for the route, and Danza neither found the route, nor was he the first Spanish officer that found the route. There was a, a uh, Spanish captain, Pedro Fages, F-A-G-E-S at any rate, who, in pursuit of deserters from the San Diego Presidio, soldiers, Spanish mm -hmm. soldiers, um, had found the route several years before Dan's ever got there. So even back then, it was sort of kind of involved in politics. Uh, and this was at a time when they weren't sure whether California was a peninsula yes. or not. <laughs> Interesting. Yes. I had never thought about yes. that. Tell us about what they were looking for. Or... Well, hard to say. I mean, they wanted a route to uh, be able to resupply both, interestingly enough, uh, the Presidio in San Francisco, which seems a long ways off the beaten path of that, and the one in San Diego. And they still weren't sure whether that was doable uh, in a straight line without encountering a body of water. Hmm. And it seems odd to us today, <laughs> right. but you know, what did they know? What, what the, how could they have known? Um, Tell us about the the building of that that railroad, the trestle. Is that still in use? It looked in the, your photographs. It looks clean and in pretty damn good shape. It is in modest use. It is in a state of uh, restoration. Mm -hmm. To what end? I haven't the slightest idea. So, late eighteen hundreds, so late nineteenth century. Uh, the Spreckles, I can't remember the man's first name, but of the, the sugar magnet, mm -hmm. okay? He got uh, into it, and the idea was to build a railroad from Yuma, Arizona to the coast, to mm -hmm. San Diego, um, basically tying the southern tier of the nation together to the east and also providing a means of transporting the agricultural goods from the Imperial Valley or the Salton Sea area and mm -hmm. other places like that. Okay, so by the time they got around to, went back and forth, yes, no, maybe, and um, early 20th century, like in the first couple of years, they finally figured they had it done and 
construction was started on the railroad comes World War I, shortages steel, and it was abandoned. The, the completion of the railroad was abandoned. So it was never built east of El Centro, California. Mm -hmm. And extraordinarily, unbelievably uh, rugged terrain, the steepness of the area that the Goat Canyon trestle in, which is the main focus of that whole thing, mm -hmm. um, is at least as steep as any place in Yosemite Valley. It's that kind of, you know, you can't hardly believe that the desert could be that steep kind of story. Um, one thing that, that I also found really interesting was um, just the sheer size uh, of that trestle. So tell us about how big that is. And when you were photographing it, um, did you find any challenges? I mean, just in it must be kind of a tourist attraction there. As, as oh, such. no. Oh, really? Oh, no. That is not any simple place to get there. That's oh. a, from a point at which you have to abandon a four-wheel drive. The round-trip hike is four hours. Wow. <laughs> so okay, I guess it's not a tourist trap. Not at all. <laughs> not only that, it uh, turns out that the park, would really not rather not have people out there at all in the law of railroad rights of way and that's the actually the proper way of using that term mm -hmm. that's all private property oh, okay right right we have and, a railroad right behind us there right so of interest is that for the park to go for the book we actually uh, wrote disclaimers uh, explaining to the public that the railroad was included as part of the cultural history and was appropriate for the book, but that trespass upon the right-of-way or trying to go out there um, could be met, met with fines. Mm. I mean, you can be arrested for it. Now, um, you have some pictures from what you call uh, Fonts Point. Yes. It, tell us about Fonts Point now. Where is that within the park? Is it north or south? Because this park is kind of like a, uh, almost an uh, upside-down L in some ways. Well, I, I consider it two different uh, pieces, the mm -hmm. park. One that is the north side, which is north of uh, California State Road 78, and the other that's between Highway 78 and Interstate 8. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's that close to the border. Mm -hmm. So um, the Fonts Point is on the north side of the Borrego Badlands, and it is uh, actually part of the Ocotillo Rim that we spoke of earlier. Mm -hmm. And it's just one of those magical places. I mean, it really is. It's, a, it's about a four-mile off-road uh, trip, not too big a deal. You know, you don't need a, a uh, an SUV can do it. Mm. You know, it doesn't need to be a, a massive uh, boulder crawling actual four-wheel drive to get up there. So that's sort of kind of one of the tourist places, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, people tend to go up there for sunset and then leave before the light show starts because mm. they think because the sun's gone below the far western ridge that that's the end of the show and usually that's just about when it's going to start being really seriously uh, beautifully lit what what do you mean how uh, 
how could it be lit seriously beautifully lit when the sun's down and <laughs> tell us what what that sun show below is. Uh, a stratus deck or a partial stratus deck will uh because we you have the long refractory angle of the sun at or near or below the horizon actually mm -hmm. um shining back up into the cloud runs the red end of the spectrum uh ratches it up considerably that mm -hmm. is reflected off the bottom of the cloud deck and or whatever clouds are around the clouds themselves sometimes uh, being of sufficient interest to be a significant part of the compositions. Um, tell us about uh, choosing the photographs from this for this book. You've got <laughs> 15 years of photographs. This cannot be easy. I, I don't do it. That's, you don't do it. <laughs> no. um, Who does? Well, that's part of what you got. One is it is appropriate to be quite careful of your own nepotism. Mm. Okay, so by that I, you mean? Well, I don't want to be the one that chooses the pictures. Uh -huh. Okay, I, I need to have somebody choose the pictures that um, has no memory of being in love with the place I was when I took the took the photograph. Oh, okay. because you're you want somebody who's just looking at the image exactly. doesn't have all the memories attached to it because exactly. you might have a. Uh, a photograph that's wonderful but not as beautiful, but for you, yes. it brings back all the, yes. the thrill of being there. Oh, yeah. that's a really interesting so. point. Yes. So what I do is uh, I generally edit down to, let's say, five or 600 images. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've had the same uh, editor designer work with me for all three books. And mm -hmm. um, then I go to her and we spend a couple of days with them and um, can I affect it? Yes, I can affect it. Um, so if there's something that I got to have, kind of, <laughs> you know, I ooh and ah and jump up and down a lot. And generally it makes it in the book. But mm -hmm. uh, I try not to do it. I really do. It's just. <laughs> now, you've done calendars, too. And I'm looking at this book, which is just chock full of beautiful photographs. I'm thinking about a calendar with 12 images. It just must tear your heart out. That was uh, early on in um, my published life, mm -hmm. and I guess I was uh, that those were of the sub images from the subaquatic caves mm -hmm. in uh, Yucatan, mm -hmm. uh, Quintana Roo, the actual state. But anyway, and um, I was so happy with having it done that it didn't bother me very much what was done, mm -hmm. and uh, the guy that uh, did that. Uh, is an old uh, New York Times editor. Mm. And uh, so he brooks no, um, he takes no prisoners. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, Lalo was coming up with four letter words to describe that. And I thought, no, this is a, <laughs> it's supposed to be for an NPR interview. Let's not do that. So he's really good. Mm -hmm. uh, he did a lot, actually, for my writing style because his bent was photojournalistic and mm -hmm. not to become uh, enamored of the prose, mm -hmm. to tell the story and not, you know, uh, make it sound like a romance novel. Um, a, a big part of your, you know, deal are these dog and pony shows as, as you yeah. call them that, that you like doing yeah. that's a different thing as well and, and 
these days you have to contend with all sorts of, uh, you know, kind of kludgy technology, laptops, projection, and, and you know, you've got variable lighting situations. Yes. Variable. Do you carry your own screen with you? How do you, like... We are fully self-contained. Fully self-contained. Because I don't trust anybody. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, don't blame you. Well, sort of. I'm, I mean, I'm half adjusted, but we are fully self-contained. Mm -hmm. Okay, and... Once again, you being an IT guy, uh, the worst thing about the shows is you got to be your own IT guy. Mm -hmm. So you're doing the setup, and uh, the other night at the at the book cafe, they were, oh God, they so everything's running. Mm -hmm. All right, I, all the the junk is turned on, and everybody's all the cords are happy, and you know the drill. You're mm -hmm. an IT guy yourself. And so I requested, may we turn the lights down to the level they'll be at during the show so that I can check the projector output, you mm -hmm. know, to see what we're doing with it. And they started flipping light switches. And in the process of flipping light switches, and oh, by the way, the, the bulb in this projector is just a little under $400, okay? Mm -hmm. The bulb is. Mm -hmm. uh, because it has the ability, we've used the projector in rooms uh, uh, like, um, oh, one of them was the Shands Auditorium at the University of Florida. So huge, 400-person auditorium, so you're back a ways, and this machine has enough punch to, you know, be able to do that and, and mm -hmm. conversely be able to be toned down for smaller venues, which... Of course, was the case the other night. Okay, so we're all set up and ready to check the lighting, and they start flipping switches, and they three almost three times in about with about ten seconds spacing, they turned off the switch on the wall that killed the power to the projector and the computer. The computer didn't care because it has a battery in it, mm -hmm. but the projector got those three shocks in a row, and oh. each one of the shocks was a shock right to my heart. <laughs> I <laughs> so. um, and, and when you're giving these shows, you are giving a, a bit of narration. How much of this is scripted and how much of it is you uh, uh, trips off the end of your tongue? Okay, first, no narration. Oh, you don't nar narrate. You no, don't say not anything. at all. Uh, the, the terminology that I've uh, developed for people to use in promoting these shows is mm -hmm. actually that they are a uh, computer-generated multimedia show. Mm -hmm. So the show runs without a word being said. Oh, okay. That... okay not, not a single word. Uh, mm -hmm. And I got that years ago. Uh, I recognize that... that uh, you know when your relatives used to make a slideshow what they came back from their summer vacation with? Mm -hmm. Yeah? That. <laughs> uh, music? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Who, who multimedia. Yeah. Okay. Well, in this particular one, we started out with uh, Earth to the Moon from 2001 and then to the Blue Danube, and then in no particular order, um, uh, Mozart's Eine Kleine Nacht music and Vivaldi's Spring, and uh, it gives a light, lilting flavor to you know, the progression of it. And uh, Computer-generated, yes, this is not one image after another presented in the same place on the screen. The images are presented at the same aspect ratio, that is, length times width of, that the image appears in the book, and they dance. Mm. I don't mean that for the 10 seconds they're on the screen they dance, but each image after the other forces the uh, viewer to uh, move their eyes. 
So uh, there is very little falling asleep or the like as that. Mm -hmm. Say a little bit by way of uh, introduction prior. And in the introduction, make a big deal out of uh, wanting them to be um, uh, participatory. Mm -hmm. Okay. And say that at the end of the multimedia show, I sincerely invite your participation and the more questions you ask and the more you add to the discussion, the livelier and more interesting our time together will be. So finish the show. Now you have the problem. Are they going to ask questions, right? Mm -hmm. So I leave that image of me as the little kid because that's the last image in the show mm -hmm. uh, on the screen. And I have cutouts. That is, if questions are slow in coming, I resort. One of the stories is the rattlesnake story and mm -hmm. my spouse and having her hand in the bush and that whole thing and, and the railroad trestle, of course. And then if they're really sort of kind of uh, shut down, mm -hmm. I then get off on, come on, you guys, isn't gonna anybody going to ask about the cute little kid that's the last picture in our show? <laughs> I mean, give me a break. Surely somebody wants to know about the cute little kid, and that breaks them free and gets them started. Albeit, I'll then tell the story. I say, okay, nobody going to ask. I'm going to tell you the story anyway. And then go on and tell the story complete with the fact that my dad, who took the picture, had to know that uh, the his budding photographer kid had two fingers over the lens. <laughs> you know, and it had to tickle the fool out of him. Well, you see how it's getting a chuckle out of you. So that's to break them loose from you know uh, that concept in a in a group like that to uh, be reticent to start questioning. Anyway, once it starts, uh, that's the funnest part. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's when I do my best. And very early on in my doing of these things years ago, I was um, a bit too professorial and didactic, and they were very dry, and found out in a big hurry that this was really, really no good. So I uh, realized that I had to let Lalo out, okay, <laughs> and be the same glib... Um, well, I don't know whether you're going to leave this in, but it's true. Um, asshole that I am in normal times. <laughs> and that if you allow yourself to be there and they re can relate to you as, can't help myself, just another asshole like them, it makes it go great. It really mm -hmm. does, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm using that term and um, I sort of am proud of the fact that I am one of those at this point in my life. <laughs> now, given that you started working on this book, say, 15 years ago, I'm wondering how many other books you're working on right now. I mean, you might be working on three or four other books or... or but you don't know it. We, oh, you we, don't know only, it. Right. There's <laughs> oh. only one that I know of that we're actually working on that mm -hmm. will uh, almost for sure be the subject of the fourth book mm -hmm. um, if we're privileged to be able to put that book together. And that's of the Colorado Plateau. So I even know not to use that term uh, as part of the title because then everybody wants to know what's the Colorado Plateau. Mm -hmm. And you can't have it on a book jacket with an explanation. Mm -hmm. So the Colorado Plateau really meaning the drainages in, from southern Utah into northern Arizona that in fact make up those landforms that flow into the Colorado River drainage system. 
So that would include the Green River and all the rest of them. So you're talking about like uh, uh, arches, canyonlands, uh, Capitol Reef, North Rim of the Grand Canyon, um, the Navajo Tribal Park, uh, Monument Valley, that is, uh, places of that, mm. that nature. That's, that's a big area. Well, so we've been doing that for five years, <laughs> okay, having and in the midst of that be doing, you know, the finishing up of this plus producing the book, which mm-hmm. takes almost a year out of your, your life. But meantime, so now you've made six or seven trips out to this area, and all of a sudden, once again, you say, hey, look at this. We actually have a body of, of work here now that is almost sufficient to do a book on that area. And as a matter of fact, the end of this month, first first Sunday in March, we're heading out to a fairly serious four-wheel drive portion on the Green River and uh, adjacent to Canyonlands. I've been speaking with Lalo Fiorelli. His new book is Secret Splendors of the Desert, Anza Borrego Desert State Park. Thank you for joining me, Lalo. Thanks for having me once again. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.